Yeah, just last night I, I was watching uh, what was the O'Reilly Factor on Fox, and they were interviewing the uh, head of a, of a group of people called Godless Americans. Well, that'd be a nice group to be involved with, Godless Americans, and just looking for rights for godless people. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> These are the times in which we live. In Genesis chapter 20, um, I'll tell you, I, I've been thinking about this chapter for like two weeks. Read it over several times at first, and I thought, what is there in this? You know, really to talk about it. I mean, Abraham makes a blunder. You'll see that. Uh, there's a response to it. Things are restored and everybody kind of goes merrily on their way. And, and as I read through it, I thought, okay, so Lord, what do you want to tell us out of this? It's one of those chapters that goes by very quickly. 18 verses, bam, and we're gone. Um, but you guys know me. We can, we'll spend some time on it. <laughs> there are some things to be discovered, some things I think that are incredibly relevant and important. But let's go back, uh, starting in the first couple of verses. We studied those verses Sunday morning, but as a quick review, Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, quick review. Abraham leaves Hebron. Now, this is right after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we talked about on Sunday morning, I think, personally, the two are connected. I think Abraham hightailing it out of there is part of the, of the situation. He, he saw this destruction happen. And like anyone, any human being with any sense of emotions whatsoever, you see something as tragic, as horrifying as that, and even if you know it's justified, it's hard to see. It's hard to handle. It's hard to work it all out in our minds. There are a lot of things in this world we have trouble working out in our minds, especially when it comes to justice and mercy and righteousness and judgment. You know, as our Supreme Court is, is hearing this case right now, as, as the Congress is listening to the whole 9-11 commission, all this stuff is going on, and people are having to make judgments. And in the meantime, we look around the world and we see injustices happening all the time. And for us as humans, it's difficult to work all that out. Abraham is no different. And I've said this many times before, and I will continue to say this, as we see people in the Bible, don't look at them as one or two dimensional characters. Don't look at them as old Sunday school flannel graphs that, that you know, just have no depth to them. These are real people who lived real lives just like you and I live real lives today. They struggled with things. They doubted. They hurt. They, they praised. They rejoiced. They, they went through all the emotions we do. They were just human beings. Abraham is no different. And he watches Sodom go down. And immediately he leaves Hebron. Now you may remember Hebron means fellowship. And we get this picture of Abraham leaving fellowship with the Lord. How do you know this, Rick? Because of what happens in chapter 20. He leaves the fellowship of Hebron. He leaves the altar that he built in Hebron. And we have nothing that indicates he built another altar. Not at least right away. And so he's left fellowship. He's left worship at the altar. And when you leave fellowship and you leave worship, you're setting yourself up. You're setting yourself up for sin to creep in, which is exactly what happens to Abraham. In fact, he commits the same exact sin that he committed 25 years earlier in Egypt. Same thing. No, she's not my wife. She's my sister. Isn't she pretty? <laughs> and 25 years before, Pharaoh takes Sarah into his harem. And now, once again, now we're in Gerar. Gerar is the capital city of the Philistines. 
And so the Philistine king, Abimelech, and Abimelech, by the way, is, is like Pharaoh. It's, it's, not, it's not necessarily a name as much as it is a title. There are other Abimelechs in Scripture. And I don't think that it's a guy's name. I think it's more a title, like Pharaoh is a title. But Abimelech, or, or the king of Gerar, takes Sarah away from Abraham. And Abraham is okay. He's protected. He's not killed. Because in the day, that was the culture, that the kings could just take any woman they wanted, and if the woman was married, just kill the husband. No problem. So Abraham was a bit fearful. You'd think after 25 years, he'd learn a little more. I can almost see it happening 25 years earlier. He's young, fresh in his faith. He doesn't have it all down altogether. He hasn't seen God do a lot of what he sees God do over time. But now, to commit the same exact sin... And it even seems worse in the context of this chapter, as I think you'll see tonight. Well, let's go on from here. Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is married. Now, Abimelech... Now, see, before we go any further, I, I love that God, he speaks the vernacular. You're a dead man, Abimelech. I said the same thing to Jeff D'Angelo. This was about... Uh, three weeks ago Jeff you're a dead man now, I couldn't do anything about it because at the time I was in a bathroom stall and he had just dumped a load of snow over the top of the stall <laughs> Jeff you're a dead man I'm biding my time it will come back so God says to Abimelech I had nothing to do with the story I just wanted to share behold you're a dead man because of the woman you have taken for she is married now Abimelech had not come near her, which is interesting. And he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now think about this interesting dream conversation between Abimelech, who, by the way, is a pagan, and God, the one true God. Why does God get involved with Abimelech? Why does he kind of step in and give Abimelech a second chance? Well, it's interesting. Number one, you might note this. Abimelech claims integrity and God agrees. Abimelech cries out, integrity! I did this with full integrity. Now, this is the first mention of the word integrity in Scripture. And I keep bringing up this first mention thing because usually when you find a word mentioned for the first time, you can understand that word and its context throughout the entire Bible. Based on that first mention, it's fascinating how when these words come up, the context in which they are used helps you understand the word later on in Scripture. And integrity is no different. He claims integrity. Now, the word integrity, I looked it up, means the quality or state of being complete or undivided. Basically, integrated. All aspects of your life integrated into one person. A person who walks with integrity is someone who you can count on to do what they say they're going to do who you know is going to act the way they say they're going to act, who thinks the same as they behave, that's integrity. And Abimelech is claiming this. He's saying, hey, this is done in the integrity of my heart. This is the idea of integrating belief and behavior, faith and lifestyle. And if I'm any example of it, folks, we're not real good at it. Lifestyle and faith. 
See, we live in a world where those are two very separate things, or tend to be. I have the life that I live during the week, the things that I do, whether it's at school or at work or at home with my family, that's my lifestyle. Then I have my faith. My faith is what turns on when I walk in the door of the barn. My faith is what happens Sunday morning when the music starts. Oh yes, I'm a person of faith, but my lifestyle, well I've got to get about the business of living. Lifestyle and faith, to integrate the two is, is critical for us as believers. Well, man, that, it's hard to do. Paul says this, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, he says, Our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially towards you. What a great thing to be able to say. Hey, the way I believe, the things that I think, my faith in God is completely integrated in the way I have behaved, in the way I conduct myself in the world. So that when someone sees my behavior, they are also seeing my faith. Flip in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 17. Paul says some stuff, and he's able to say this. He is a man of integrity, a man of a truly changed life. You may recall that the Apostle Paul was a man named Saul who was a Christian killer. He was a murderer of Christians. He was one going after Christians, trying to throw them into jail, trying to put down the whole Christian movement until Jesus stood right in his path one day and said, Hey, buddy, lighten up. You're on the wrong side here. I've got other work for you. It's my translation. You're not going to find that in the book of Christian, in the shelves of Christian bookstores. But this is what happened. Jesus stops Saul, changes him to Paul, and Paul's life finally becomes integrated. He becomes a man of integrity. Philippians 3.17, he is able to write, Brethren, join in following my example. And observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now he's not arrogant, folks. He's speaking truthfully. He's saying, you can follow my example. Maybe a good way to put it is follow my example as I follow Christ. Follow me as I am following Christ. He says, observe the pattern. Observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Verse 18, he says, For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, check this out, transform, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. It's a transformation process. Here's the good news about integrity if you're a believer in Jesus. The good news is, though you may not be completely integrated, lifestyle and faith, as long as you are pursuing Jesus in His Word, heading down that path, you are in a transformation process where God is integrating the two in your life. God is more and more transforming you to be like Jesus, to be, as, as Paul says, even like Paul. He reminds us our citizenship is in heaven. To be a part of a group that calls themselves godless Americans. This is what you want to be known for. What we're seeing right now is a brazenness in people in our country we have not seen before. 
a shake your fist at the sky type of attitude that says I don't care if there's a God or not I am godless and proud of it I will carry that banner down the street I will say hey if you're there look at me I'm independently godless I'm doing it my way well Paul is weeping for such people Paul is literally weeping. And I, I think if we had the original manuscripts, you might even see smudges on this writing because he's weeping as he writes for the enemies of the cross of Christ. But notice this. Paul doesn't say that to win them, you need to become like them. I don't know where the church got that idea. I don't know where we as Christians got that idea that to win the world around us, we need to be like the world around us. We need to act like the world around us. We need to kind of integrate ourselves into the world around us. Paul says, no, you want to you make a difference? You want to save those people who are lost? Our citizenship is in heaven. Our Savior is Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. That's the deal. That will save people. Your pursuit of holiness will make the difference in people's lives. Not your becoming like people in the way they live their lives. Not being one of the gang. Not just fitting in to the way the world is. If you want to win people to Jesus, it's about integration to His will. Transformation to His way of doing things. John MacArthur in his book, Hard to Believe, said the following. He said, true Christians are already saved and sealed for eternity. He's right on. He says, there's no reason to leave us on earth except for this responsibility of evangelism. I disagree. I think he's right on that Christians are already saved and sealed for eternity. Absolutely. But the only reason we're left on earth is not evangelism. I believe there are two, at least two good reasons why after a person is saved, God leaves us on earth and doesn't just whisk us right up to heaven. The first one is indeed evangelism. To win people, to reach people with the message of the cross. But the second one is so that we can be integrated, transformed, conformed to the glory of His image. So that through our lives on earth we can walk down this path and become more and more like Jesus. God uses this life as preparation for eternity for each of us. That, folks, as well as evangelism, is why we're here. Those two things, by the way, again, go hand in hand. For the more I am like Christ, the more of an evangelist I become. And the more I seek to evangelize the world, man, the more I'm going to try and become like Christ because I know the only way to save people is to do so like Christ. So we're saved, but we still need to be transformed. God seals us for salvation, but He is still hard at work in our hearts and our lives, changing us, making us like Him. My kids are life members in the Crawford clan. They were from the moment they were born. But the moment they were born, we didn't just set them aside and say, okay, they're Crawfords now, good, next. We worked day in and day out as parents, trying to teach them, train them, help them to grow up, and God does no less with us. He wants us to grow into the image of Jesus. Integrity. It's valuable for evangelism. It's critical for transformation. And Paul says in Romans chapter 12 verse 2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And dawn of the dead 
just knocked the passion this last weekend out of first place in the box office. And I thought, what an interesting contrast. The Dawn of the Dead now has taken control over the Passion of the Christ. But that's the new hot one. And people are going, okay, well, the Passion was good, but <laughs> dead people walking around, cool. Zombies. Rated R. Blood, gore, violence, death. Yeah. What is Rick talking about, Dawn of the Dead? What's the matter, Josh? I'm kicking you, man? <laughs> I would never do that. Well, I might do that to you. I'd do that to anyone. Dawn of the Dead is number one box office smash this last weekend. Now, I love this because there was a little conversation that happened on Sunday, and, and you can kill me later. Feel free to. But it involves some of our students. I won't say who. <laughs> and some that wanted to go see Dawn of the Dead. Hey, let's go see the movie. And listen, I'm talking about this because I was there. My high school life, as a son of an elder in the church, that would have been the first movie I would have wanted to see. And I would have been there. In fact, I saw most of those movies in high school. I could give you a whole list of the movies that I went and saw, rated R movies, before I was even 17, that I wanted to see. Oh, yeah, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And, and as a Christian, I had no problem with it. No problem. I could do both. I had my lifestyle. I had the things that I wanted to do. And I had church, you know. And I was, I was a good kid. I mean, I wasn't out smoking pot and doing drugs and, you know, sleeping with every guy. I wasn't doing any of that. I just went to the movies where they did it, you know. I, just, I experienced it vicariously through other people. So I'm speaking as one with, with understanding. <laughs> and I, I wouldn't even have pointed you out, but you're over there just, you know, shaking and kicking. But supposed to be number one on Easter again. Oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Okay, so the passion is going to be number one again. Right now it's just Dawn of the Dead for a short period of time. Okay, good. Here's the deal. Why, why mention this? I love this because Leslie just, it was perfect. On Sunday we're talking and she brings out some brownies that she had there and she said, now listen, here's the deal. And you may have heard this before. It's just a great sermon illustration. But she goes, now in these brownies I've got sugar and, and milk and cocoa and just a little bit of dog poop. Would you like some? And the guys, all the, all the students, you know, the teen guys are standing around going, No, I don't want any of that. It's, like, it's the same thing. There's just a little bit of bad language. You know, there's just a little bit of violence. There's just a little bit of nudity. I mean, that's just, just a little rated R. Well, sure, and there's just a little bit of dog poop in these brownies. Who's going to have the first bite? <laughs> no, we wouldn't go there. It's just it's gross. It's disgusting. Folks, why is it any different with sin? Why is it that we can go, and I know I'm picking on you guys, but trust me, I'm only doing this because that was me sitting there watching the movies thinking there's no problem, but guys, there is. And adults who sit here and we talk about our kids, oh, it went so dawn of the dead, that was awful. That was just terrible. Anybody see um, Something's Gotta Give? Any adults see that? Um, I could probably go down a list of great movies that we as adults see because they're, you know, they're mature. Oh, yeah, well, there's just a little bit of nudity. But it's still, it's an adult movie. I mean, it's not like zombies walking around eating each other. And we rationalize just like they do, don't we? We do the same thing. Integrity. Here's my life. Here's my faith. Can I bring the two together as an integrated, complete, undivided whole? That's the goal. This makes me really uncomfortable to talk about because I got DVDs I shouldn't even have right now. 
I'm go home and burn them. And... No. How does God respond to integrity here? Again, it's the first mention. It's important we look at it. How does God respond to Abimelech's integrity? Check this out. Look at this. Mark this. He keeps him from sinning. God says, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. And that's a principle of integrity, folks. Living, walking with integrity. Integrity provides protection from sin. It keeps us from sinning. It helps us avoid sin. As we seek to integrate faith in our lives, God protects us against the things we don't even know that we would be doing wrong. He keeps us from them. It's amazing to me. Here's Abimelech, this king of the country. He takes this woman into his harem. And usually when you took a woman into your harem, there was one reason for doing that. One reason. It wasn't so she could cook you a nice meal. It wasn't because the castle needed some cleaning. It was sexual and that was it. But the night that Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem, he doesn't call her in. He's snoozing in his bed. What's wrong with this guy? What's going on here, Abimelech? Why don't you move on this? Because God keeps him from doing it. I don't know, maybe God put a little something in his coffee? God made Abimelech kind of sleepy. Actually, we know God did more than that to Abimelech. He took away desire. He made Abimelech impotent. You ever seen a dog after he's had that done? They're lazy. They just kind of lounge around. They don't bark much anymore. That was Abimelech. That night. He's got the whole harem. But he's like, he's going to go to bed. He's going to go to sleep. What? Dog food. Dog sleeping. And you know what? I'll mention dogs again. I'll try and work them in a few more times. <laughs> Folks, you may have heard that that sin has been described in a couple of different ways. There are sins of commission that we commit blatantly on purpose. Man, we're we're just rebelling. I'm holding up the godless American sign. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Sins of commission. But there are also sins of omission. You don't even know you're doing it. I I don't mean to do it. I find out halfway through, well, this is wrong. I'm not not supposed to burn all these CDs off the Internet and and pass them out to everyone. That's wrong? Oops. (laughs) I did this once. Just, just stupid, you know, stupid youth ministry tricks. I was youth pastor down in California, and Titanic was, had, was out in the theaters at the time. Great, great movie. There you go. There's another one. You know, it's just a little nudity. I mean, how, you know, how bad is that? Anyway, it came out, and and I had gone to see it, and, and aside from that part, was just really impressed by the whole just spectacle of the ship going down and, and everything else. And, thought it was great. So I'm talking about it on a Sunday morning, talking to the teenagers about it, and, and I mentioned, by the way, that some, some of our kids got a hold of a pirated copy, and we were going to watch it at my house, and anyone who wanted to come over and watch it, and I'm halfway through, and, and, and one of our adult leaders came up to me afterwards and said, you want all the kids to come over and watch a pirated copy of a movie with nudity at your house? <laughs> And I just, you know, I started about 6'1 and got down to about two feet tall going, oh, I'm an idiot, you know. Amazing. Sins of omission. You don't even, you just blunder right into it. Next thing you know, you look back and go, oh, why did I do that? I didn't mean to do that, but integrity provides protection. Abimelech didn't know that Sarah was married. He had no idea. Why? Because Abraham said, she's my sister. 
Oh, she's your sister? Well, great. We'll bring her into the harem. 90 years old, remember. <laughs> Which means either Abimelech's a little... Or, 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 or Sarah was absolutely stunning. She must have been one gorgeous woman. 90 years old and the king of the country wants you in his harem. Of course, he gets sleepy. Maybe that's why he, you know... Anyway... Integrity provides protection. Folks, if you, if you walk with integrity, with integrating your, your life and your faith as one and the same thing, you will commit less sin because, and mark this, because sin will become increasingly disgusting to you. It will bother you more and more. The less you expose yourself to sin, the less you're going to enjoy watching it when it happens. I'll give you another example, another movie example, because again, it's so easy. Hollywood just provides all kinds of examples for us. Yesterday, Sean and I went and saw Fifty First Dates, the Adam Sandler movie. Funny movie. Really funny. But why is it that every single movie that's out, especially the comedies, have to have someone in it who is neither male nor female, or a cross-dresser, or a homosexual, and they have nothing to do with the plot of the movie. It has nothing to do, even, you know, I'm not saying it's okay if it has something to do with it either, but just these characters in it. And I sat there watching the movie and I could not enjoy it. It was frustrating. Because I wanted to laugh. The part with Adam Sandler and, and with Drew Barrymore, funny, kind of touching, you know. Other than that, for the most part, I was enjoying the movie, but these things just keep, and it was just disgusting. And that's what happens. The more we try to integrate life and faith, and the more we follow after Jesus, the more sin around us just kind of grosses us out. The more it just disgusts us. God's reaction to Abimelech teaches me that even in the case of sins that I'm completely unaware of, sins of omission, even in those situations, He will protect those who walk with integrity. He'll protect you. If you're walking with integrity. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. First of all, that's important. There are no new sins. You know what? You and I are not coming up with anything new. As Solomon said in, in Proverbs and in, in um, Ecclesiastes, uh, rather, there's nothing new under the sun. It's all been done before. We're not coming up with all kinds of new ways to sin. It's all been done. No sin has overtaken you, but such is common to man. But, he goes on and says, And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So if you're facing a sin issue, a struggle, something you're, you're, you want to do, you know you shouldn't do, you're not sure how to, look for the way out because it's there. God promises, He provides a way out. So Abimelech claims integrity and God agrees with him. But look at verse 5 again. He says, In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. I love God's response. Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. But God doesn't say anything about the innocence of Abimelech's hands. Abimelech claims integrity and God agrees. Abimelech claims innocence and God does not agree. What do you mean? Folks, had Abimelech taken Sarah to his bed that night, it still would have been an act of adultery. It still would have been an act of fornication. It still would have been sin. 
Whether he knew she was a married woman or not, it still was wrong. Now, he didn't know she was married, and so when he took her, it wasn't like violating a marriage. So there was integrity. He didn't know he was doing something wrong, as it were. But he was still sinning. It was still wrong. Abimelech was not innocent. And there's only one reason why Abimelech didn't commit this adulterous act. As I said a few moments ago, God kept him from touching Sarah. God protected Sarah. God stepped in. Why did God do that? Why would God protect a sinful man, a pagan king, a Philistine? Why would God protect him from sinning? Well, because God was protecting Abimelech because of his integrity. That's one reason we've seen. But also, he was protecting Sarah. But thirdly, and I think most importantly, he was protecting Isaac. He was protecting the child not yet born. Do you realize this is the same year that Isaac will be born? Sarah may even have been pregnant at the time she was taken into the harem. Possibly. Or maybe she wasn't quite yet pregnant. And who is always hard at work trying to thwart the plans of God? Satan is. You go back to the beginning of Genesis and time after time after time, Satan tries to implicate himself into the seed. He tries to corrupt it. He tries to mess it up. And we see it again right here. The very year that God is going to bless Abraham and Sarah with Isaac, the child, the promised child, who then would become the father of Jacob, you also know him as Israel, who would be the father of the twelve tribes, who then would be the fathers down generations all the way down to Jesus. The very year Isaac is going to be born, what happens? Abraham is caught up in a lie and Sarah is in a harem And Satan's going, yeah, man, I'm going to Abimelech to sleep with Sarah, and she can get pregnant. We're going to mess up God's plan. And that's always what Satan does. We can mess him up. Folks, God was not only protecting Isaac, he was protecting you and me from this sin. He was protecting all people who would come to faith in Jesus Christ because that line needed to be protected. Isaac to Jacob to Israel to Christ. God was protecting, but Abimelech was not blameless. He was not innocent. Be careful up there riding high on the horse of innocence because reality will eventually kick you off. We can strive for integrity, but folks, we are not innocent. If we were innocent, Jesus never would have gone to the cross. Let's go to verse 7. Now therefore, restore the man's wife, God says to Abimelech, for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you will live but if you do not restore her know that you shall surely die you and all who are yours so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told all these things in their hearing and the men were greatly frightened (laughs) and rightly so verily verily they were freaking out prophet this is the first mention of the word prophet in scripture and between you and me I don't think I would have put it here I'm not sure this is the best place for that word to be. God says, Abraham is my prophet. Now, note this closely, students of the Bible. The Hebrew word for prophet is nabi. It literally means inspired one. Inspired one. One carrying the message given brief by God. Not one, by the way, carrying their own message. And that's critical to understand. 
The prophet does not come up with something on his own. The prophet speaks the words of God. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20 says, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made, ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The process of prophecy is not interpretation. It's inspiration. It's not what a man thinks God might be saying. It's not what you or I jump out there and, and, and proclaim and then hope that God gave it to us after the fact. It is inspiration. True prophecy comes from God Himself. But here's the truly amazing thing here. It's very difficult. God calls Abraham His inspired prophet. His witness. Even though in this moment... As God is speaking to Abimelech, Abimelech knows and God knows that Abraham is a false witness. The prophet of God is a liar. And like I said, I don't know if I would put prophet right in this story. I might have waited until later. Daniel, there's a good place to put the first mention of the word prophet. Let's wait until a guy who we don't see any guile in him. We don't see anything wrong. We, we see a guy who really is standing up for God and then say, that's a prophet. But God chooses in the middle of his sin to call Abraham my prophet. What does this tell me about the Lord's calling? Romans 11.29 says the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God had called Abraham. God had a plan for Abraham. God was working through Abraham to bring about an amazing thing for the blessing of the whole world. It wasn't about what Abraham was doing. It was about what God was doing. And so even though Abraham was falling flat on his face, he was still a prophet of the Lord because God had called him to do that. Remember that the next time you're wallowing in guilt over some sin in your life that you don't think God can forgive. Remember that when you think, well, I could never talk to somebody about Jesus because I've just blown it too many times. You know what? The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And I can look at this story and say, man, if Abraham blows it and he's still a prophet of God, maybe I'm still one of his kids. Maybe I'm still one of his children. Maybe I still have a voice in this world for my Lord Jesus. Now hold that thought. We're going to come back to it. But I've got to give you a little side note on discerning and understanding prophecy because we live in interesting times. Joel chapter 2 verse 28 also repeated by Peter in Acts 2.17, says, It will come about after this, that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit. In those days, Peter changes it slightly and says, In the last days, in the last days, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. And there will be prophecy. Folks, as those who are living in the last days, we should expect prophecy to happen. Matter of fact, recently, and it's interesting how God works in our lives, recently I've just been made aware of numerous prophecies. People coming up and saying, have you read this? Have you heard this? Look at this. Oh, check this out. And all like prophecies. And I'm going, what's going on? Oh yeah, last days. But, how do we handle those? How do we know that someone is truly prophesying the words of God and not their own agenda. Note this, Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets will arise and mislead 
many. Along with the promise of prophecy in the last days, that your sons and daughters will dream dreams and prophesy, along with that, Jesus says, but take care. Many false prophets, that word many is literally myriad. There will be thousands upon thousands of false prophets in the last days. Arising in mass. We live in days where discernment of spiritual things is incredibly important. Where we need to be able to go to the Word and test it and test prophecy to see, is this of God or is this of man? Flip in your Bibles real quickly to Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. Let's check out and see how do we know if someone is a prophet of the Lord. The Bible actually gives us a very explicit way of understanding, of knowing that. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20. Deuteronomy 18, 20. I'm going to give you several verses here. We'll read through this one together, and then I'm going to give you several more. And if you're taking notes, you want to jot those down. But Deuteronomy 18.20 says, But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. Let me read that again. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. What God is saying here is very important for us. A prophet may prophesy 25 things and they're all accurate. But if number 26 is wrong, if it doesn't come true, then the first 25 are negated. They are not worth anything. Now you may be wondering, well, what's the big deal with this, Rick? Gang, there are Christian prophets, so-called, out there who are saying things, claiming things. And I want you to understand, if you get a hold of a prophecy or a book that claims to be a book of a prophet, and you're reading through that, and one thing in that book does not come true, my sense is that we probably should fold the book up and put it away. Now we say in, in our time especially, well, but I can be encouraged by the rest of it. I, I know that's not true. I know that's not good. But the rest of this is so good. Be careful. Be careful because you're walking into a trap. The prophets of God never prophesied lies. Abraham was lying. Not about God. Abraham was a false witness about his wife. He had fear and concerns in his personal life, but he was not misquoting the father he did not say uh, the Lord has told me to tell you that Sarah is my sister no that was, that was an Abraham thing it was not a God thing and the prophets in scripture folks 100% accuracy well they haven't all been fulfilled have they no they haven't they're on the way they're coming but if a prophecy if someone stands up and claims to be a prophet and they say something is going to happen and then it doesn't they are a false prophet. There are several denominations in the world today that were begun by someone who was a so-called prophet who said something is going to happen and then it didn't. Be aware 
of those things. Let me give you some more verses to think about here in in discerning prophecy. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24 through 26. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, and he who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers. Prophecy is always of the Lord. It will be confirmed by the Lord. Furthermore, 1 Corinthians 14.37, Paul says, If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Paul's beginning to draw us down to the best way to know if someone is truly speaking for the Lord or not. He's drawing us down to Scripture. Scripture is the standard. The Bible is the measure. It is the way that we can test anything that someone claims to be a prophecy of the Lord. Galatians chapter 1 verse 8. Paul says even more strongly, If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Folks, the prophet of God cannot contradict the word. He can't do it. The Word of God stands as the test, the discernment for the prophet. And by the way, just in case you're thinking, okay, prophecy, it's it's all this futuristic stuff. Most prophecy in the Bible was not about futuristic stuff. It was about speaking the message of God. That's what prophecy truly is. What God wants to have heard. It's not just future stuff to tickle our ears and get us all excited and give us information about what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day. Now, there is plenty of that in Scripture as well. But the point of prophecy, understand this, it's a word from God. It's God speaking. And God does not contradict himself. Which is why it's so important that every time I teach and speak, you have your Bibles open. Every time anybody stands up and begins to proclaim the word of the Lord to you, you have your Bibles open. And you check it out. And you read it. And you study it. And you know it for yourselves. A prophet cannot contradict the word. Last verse I want to read to you on this. 1 John chapter 4. I'll just read this to you. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1. John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you heard that it it is coming and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John says, test them. Test the spirits. Test the prophets. Test it by the word of God. Revelation 19.10 tells us the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Well, what's the testimony of Jesus? That he came in the flesh. 
that he died on the cross, that he rose from the grave, that he's coming back for his bride, and that he will judge the world in righteousness and authority. That's the testimony of Jesus. Any prophecy, especially that tries to contradict that message, is not from God. Now back to Abraham. Genesis chapter 20 back there. Houston, we have a problem. If you had just hired on Honest Abe as your prophet, and he did this, would you not be ready to fire him? Bye-bye, Abraham. Thanks for playing. See you next time. Clean out your locker. You're done. There's your pink slip. How would you deal with this guy, this, this false witness? And I read the story, and they go, Oh, Abe, you were doing so well. It was such a last, you know, the last couple of chapters was really fun to read and to see you moving forward and believing and, and having some trust here and the circumcision thing, you did that even at your age. Proud of you, good job. And now, what are you doing, Abraham? Look at verse 9. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What have you encountered or seen that you have done this thing? Now watch this. Abraham said, Because I thought. That's it. Very simple. Because I thought. Stupid! Stop your thinking! He didn't say because I prayed or because I discerned danger or because I was trying to evangelize your house from the inside so I sent Sarah in. You know? I I thought, because I thought, I was thinking, see, I, I processed this in my puny little brain and this is what I came up with. Because I thought, and Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 tells us, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Man, lean not on your own understanding. Because I thought. We need to stop thinking, folks, and start praying. Less of this... God, what am I going to do? Okay, i got this situation. Here's I'm going to lay out all my options here. I'm going to figure out the best one. Instead, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. So get down on your knees and pray. Father, I'm not sure how to handle this situation. Pray. God, I don't know if we financially can deal with this. Pray. Lord, I don't know how to make this relationship right again. Pray. Stop thinking. Abraham messed up because he thought. And our intellectual prowess is so pathetic, so impotent next to the Father. But we have access to the greatest mind of the universe. You want to delve into some deep thinking? Go to the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Paul says a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things Yet he himself is appraised by no one. Listen, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ because I thought, stop thinking and pray and tap into the mind of Jesus who has all authority and all control and can help us through all situations. We're going on because I thought, surely, said Abraham. There is no fear of God in this land. And they will kill me because of my wife. Because she actually is my sister, he says. 
check that out. She's actually a sister. She really is. The daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. Sarah was Abraham's stepsister. Ew. <laughs> and she became my wife, he said. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is the kindness which you will show me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. And now I understand. Now I get it. Abraham wasn't just falling back to an old sin. Abraham and Sarah were living out a pattern of sin. Now we have two instances in the Bible that are specifically pointed out to us. Egypt and Gerar. Sin of Egypt, Sarah goes to Pharaoh. Sin in Gerar, Sarah goes to Abimelech. Those are the only two we have pointed out. How many do you think there really were? Abraham lets us in on a little secret, a little subversive activity, a little conspiracy hatched between himself and Sarah back when they first left their homeland in Ur. Sarah, anywhere we go, say he's my brother. This is something they've been living out for a long, long time. You know what the problem is with a half-truth, by the way? A half-truth is a whole lie. There's no such thing as a half-truth. Part of the truth. That's how Satan works. Satan loves half-truths. As a matter of fact, Satan loves 99% truths, 1% lying. That's his favorite thing in the world. Which, going back to the false prophet thing we were discussing earlier, is so important to understand. You could have 99 great things said by someone who claims to be a prophet of God, and one lie, and the lie negates it all. A half-truth is a whole lie, and folks, the father hates hates when his children lie. He hates it. The Bible is very clear about this. Proverbs 12:22, lying lips are an abomination, literally disgusting to the Lord. But those who deal faithfully are his delight. When I was a kid, the one thing I knew would bust me worse than anything else was lying. I could do the worst thing in the world. I could drive the car through the garage door and into the family room. But if I lied about it, I was a dead man. If I told my dad the truth, you know, I'd be on construction crew for the next nine months of my life, but I'd live. But if I lied, that was huge. I see now why. Because it is so huge in the heart of our Father. What's the big deal with little lies, with just kind of shading things? Why do I always have to tell the truth? Listen, God, the Father, is truth. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 tells us that. God is truth. God the Son is truth. John 14.6 tells us that. God's Spirit is truth. John 14.17 tells us that. I'll repeat these verses if you're trying to furiously write them down. And God's Word is truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. His God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and God's Word are truth. The place where God resides is truth. The character, the integrity, the nature of God is truth. So when we stand before God and we lie, we are being about as distant from God as we can possibly be. More so than just about any other time in our lives. This is why this particular story is included, folks. The Bible doesn't shy away from the truth. One of the things I love about this book is you read through it and you go, Wow, oh, I don't think I would have put that in there. It's the truth. I think I would have glossed over this story of Abraham and just gotten right to chapter 21. Isaac is born and everything is good. But it's the truth. This is what Abe did. He blew it. He messed up. 
It's sin. Right there in the pages of the Bible. We just read last week, chapter 19, what the men of Sodom wanted to do. Truth. It happened. And God is a God of truth. And the Bible is a book of truth. Folks, Moses had an anger problem. The Bible tells us that. David, King David, was an adulterer and a murderer. The Bible tells us that. One of my favorite characters in the Bible, Barnabas, son of encouragement. We find out toward the end of the Old Testament that he compromises a few things. Because the Bible is a book of truth. And the truth is, we are sinners and God is not. The truth is, we mess up and God does not. So this lie was mapped out early on in Abe and Sarah's travel plans. It was prepared, it was purposeful, it was prearranged, and Sarah was in on it. She conspired. For those of you ladies who have been saying, well, it's just no fair. Sarah just keeps getting stuck in the harem. She agreed. She was part of the plan with Abram, Abraham from early on. This is just the way that most of us sin, by the way. We always talk about, man, falling into sin. Oh, I just messed up. I just kind of sinned and just fell into it. Most of us don't fall into sin. Most of us plan to sin. I mean, let's call it what it is. Most of us have foreknowledge of what we are going to do before we do it. And we do it anyway. We step right forward into it. Abraham is working off of a plan. He's working off of a pattern. He and Sarah are doing something they have done their whole life since they left Earth. This was their M.O. Maybe instead of planning our sin, we can plan an escape. Here's how you do it. To plan an escape from sin instead of get stuck, getting stuck planning sin is you don't keep it secret. Especially if it's an issue in your life. If you have a certain fatal flaw, and you might stop and think about this momentarily. What is my fatal flaw? What is the one thing that in my life, if it came out and everybody knew, I would be done? I have to think about that a lot as a pastor. Because in my life, my job and my family and my friends are all the same thing. So if I go down in one area, I'm going down in all of them. This ship is going to sink fast if it sinks in one place. And that's the unique thing about my job. It's just, it's just the truth, man. If I sin big time, guess who's not going to be up here the next Sunday? And so I have to think about these things. And I have an accountability partner, my wife Cheryl. But I'll tell you guys, there are things she knows that goes on in my little mind that would shock you. Things I have told her because I need somebody to know. I have friends that know things about me, that know things that I struggle with and stress over and worry about. And they pray with me and hold me to account. And you guys are going, what are those things, Rick, we need to know right now? Let's lay it all out. <laughs> James 5.16 tells us, confess your sins to one another. Why? So you can hold it over each other's heads. <laughs> confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So we don't have to walk around all the time going, man, what if I get found out? What if that sin comes out? What if that intention, that motive, that thought, what if, man, I don't want the world to know these things. Somebody needs to know them besides you. Because the more it's secret, the easier it is to slide into that sin. The devil knows this. There's a thing about secrecy that makes it kind of cool. Ooh, we're doing something wrong here. 
Nobody knows. It's a thrill ride. Get it out in the open. Talk about it. Share it with someone. Find someone to whom you can be accountable. Bring it to the light so it won't keep drawing you back into the dark. Let's go to verse 14. Abimelech then took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and restored his wife Sarah to him. So Abraham gets off again with more stuff. Gets blessed. And verse 15, I love this. Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Settle wherever you please. Now, Abimelech is not impressed with Abraham the prophet, but he is impressed with God. And he does know that Abraham is supposed to be a prophet of this God who spoke to him in a dream, so he's going to do the right thing. He's going to do more than the right thing. Here, you guys, take care. Anywhere you want in the land, it's yours. Take some oxen, take, take some sheep. You know, it's cool. Abimelech is impressed by God. Verse 16 goes on. And he says, To Sarah, Abimelech said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Behold, it is your vindication before all who are with you, and before all men you are clear. Now, this is not the best translation. In fact, it, it totally throws us off. It makes it sound like a cash payoff for Sarah's innocence. Abimelech's saying, I'm going to give you some silver and some gold and some oxen and some sheep, and you get to be innocent. I'm going to buy you out. But that's not what it says. In fact, the King James Version has a much more accurate translation. Listen to the way it reads. Verse 16. Well, first of all, I've got to point this out. Isn't it interesting that to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother. He didn't say husband. His brother. That's a little dig, I think. Personal dig from Abimelech to Abraham. Oh, I've given your brother some stuff here. But here's the exact wording. First, chapter 20, verse 16. He is to be a covering of the eyes unto all that are with thee. It's not this money is your vindication. That's not the point at all. In fact, in the, in the New American Standard Bible, it says... It is your vindication. That's not right. He is a covering to your eyes, is what it literally reads. What's he saying? Folks, Abimelech has pointed out something amazing. He's saying, bottom line, Abraham the prophet is your protector from the gaze of other men. He's your protector. In other words, if he would just live up to the prophet's status, you would be fine, Sarah. You would be covered. You would be vindicated. Bottom line, Abraham, all he needed to do was stand in faithfulness to God, and there would have been no threat. Is not the God who called him to be a prophet able to keep him from being killed by some king who wanted his wife? Abraham didn't understand that, at least until now. I think because we never see this happen again in Scripture, it's either because Abraham and Sarah are just too darn old, or because they finally get it. They finally understand. They finally learn that they can trust God, and God will take care of them. As a prophet of God, Abraham should have been able to cover, protect, and secure Sarah. As a man of God... Husbands, we need to do the same. Ephesians 5.25, Paul said, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Rather than putting Sarah into this position, what Abraham could have done, should have done, is put himself on the front line of danger, put himself out there for possible threat, and watch God protect him. 
but instead the man hid behind his wife. Gentlemen, let's not be guys who hide behind our wives, but to go before our wives as protectors. As men who truly love our wives as Christ loved the church. Verse 17. We're almost done here. Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maids so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Interesting tidbit there. We wouldn't have known that other than we're told here in Scripture. Not only was Abimelech instantaneously impotent, but his entire household, birth was stopping right there. Nobody would have been able to bear children had he followed through with that sin. This was serious business. God shut up all of the wombs. No woman's going to bear. Nothing. This, this country is dead if you follow through with Sarah. Well, as we end this, because of Abraham's faithless falsehood, he was in no position to preach to Abimelech. But he could still do one thing. He could pray. And Abraham prayed to God for Abimelech. Gang, there are people in my life that I cannot preach to, share with, or witness to. There are people for whom, because of something I've done or something that's happened, I've lost a witness. Same with all of us. I can no longer preach to that person, but I can pray for them. I can continue to pray for them. Shell and I were driving down the road talking about this the other day. Some family members, people in, down in California who are having some real severe challenges right now. And we are just talking about it. It's so frustrating because I just wish they were here. You know, if we could get them up here, living here, then maybe we could do something. And as we talked about it, we said, you know, we can pray. We can pray and what more effective, powerful thing could we possibly do even if they live right next door? The most powerful thing I can do for them is to pray. And this is what Abraham does. does. And you may say, man, I, I, I want to do something. I, I want to help someone. But I can't preach to them and I feel constrained. I feel like my hands are tied. And when you feel like your hands are tied, realize that you are in the perfect position to pray. That's the best time to pray. When you can't do anything. Because in those moments, God says, good, you understand. You can't do anything. There's nothing you can do to affect change, to heal, to help here. But I can. So pray. Flip over real quickly to Psalm 35. Psalm 35. I ran across this, and it's an amazing psalm. I'm not going to read the whole thing. David is, is literally praying in this psalm for rescue from his enemies. And he says some harsh things. But I want you to hear something he said. This caught my eye. Blew me away. Psalm 35, verse 11. Psalm 35, 11. David writes, Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. Now listen. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for 
a mother. This is David's reaction to his enemies. David's response to people who just assumed he was dead. David saying, but as for me, when I heard that they were hurting, man, I, I put on sackcloth. When I heard that they were in pain or struggling or sick, I mourned. As for a family member, I ached and I prayed for and I loved them. Even though they were out for my blood, I prayed for them. I prayed and prayed. Folks, you know what's amazing is as we pray for others, God may or may not change them. That depends in part on their heart. But as we pray for other people, I can guarantee you this. God will change you. And He will change me. And we need to remember that. Because we's the people who needs the changing. As we close this out, uh, I think... I think it's entirely possible that in this moment that Abraham prayed to God that maybe some repentance happened on his part for this ongoing sin. I can't be sure. I don't know. I like to think so. I do know that the sin is never repeated again in Abraham's life in the Scriptures. But as we read this, the story tonight, the thing I struggle with all week long is how do I make right that this prophet of God did such a, a, a sinful thing? How can we sit back and read this and go, oh, but it's okay because he's Abraham. It's okay that he lied and sinned and bore false witness. That's all right. He's Abraham. I I can't do that. I was uncomfortable reading through this whole thing. His false witness in Egypt makes some sense, I guess, because he was still young in his faith, as we said before. But now, to do this thing, the year of Isaac's birth, come on. But here now, after all this time spent walking with God, after witnessing the severe judgment leveled on Sodom, after seeing God's faithfulness in spite of his failings, Abraham should have known better. And that's exactly the point. He should have known better. But knowing what he knew about God, he still blew it. Now I'm telling you all this just to say that it took me years to begin to recognize sin in my life. Because I was raised in the church. I was a Christian kid. I went to church from the moment I was born on. And I've told you this before. And I remember first really giving my life to the Lord as a 10-year-old, but even then not understanding the sin problem. Going through junior high and high school and not getting the sin problem. And it was only after that, as I began to get older, that I started to see, truly understand that there was in fact sin in my life. That I did in fact not only get Jesus just because I was raised with Him, but because I needed Him. And now the older I get in my life, the more aware I am of how great, how vast, how huge the gulf is between the Father and His perfection and my life. The more I recognize how badly... I need Jesus. And so we study along the life, the life of the father of faith. The man that James said was called, in James 2.23, the friend of God. But check this out. Do you know what Jesus was called? Abraham was the friend of God. Jesus in Luke 7.34 was called the friend of sinners. I really like that. You realize that Abraham could not be the friend of God? if Jesus wasn't the friend of sinners. Precisely because God chose friendship with us, 
that we can have friendship with Him. And we've got to get this down. We've got to understand. This is so incredibly important. Then I go over and over and over this in my mind, and, and I will say it over and over and over in here. It is not by my works. It is not by my obedience that I am saved. Then why, you ask, should I obey at all? You guys, I mean, at, at this point that you guys are at in your life, I've already picked on you once, but I'm not going to do it again. But here you are as, as high school guys. Where I was, as I said before, I know exactly what's going on in your minds because I was totally there. So here you are, and, and, and you're looking at this whole church thing, and you're saying, okay, so if I'm saved, I'm saved by grace. That means God did it all for me, and I can't do it for myself. Right. Then why should I obey Him? Why should I do anything? Why should I seek holiness, as we talked about? Why should I want to be transformed? Why not live this life and this faith? God saves me anyway. It's His grace. All i got to do is believe, right? It's that simple. Why should I obey? Let me put it to you this way. Obedience. Repentance. Confession. Transformation. All of these things happen and only happen in response to God's grace. What do you mean? I mean, if they're not happening in my life, I don't have a clue about grace. I'll go so far as to say, if I'm not striving for obedience to the Father, then I may not even be a graced person at all. I don't get it. I haven't accepted it. Because to truly understand the grace of God and the blood of Jesus on the cross, the tragedy of Jesus on the cross, that death that was horrific, to truly understand that drives me, compels me, makes me want to be obedient. It makes me want to repent of my sins. It makes me want to come down to the Father on my hands and knees and say, I will do anything you ask me to do. Because you love me so much. And I get it about that much, but that's enough for me to dedicate and devote my entire life to you. I am a friend of God only because Jesus first was a friend of sinners. Abraham was a friend of God because God chose him first. And the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Let's pray. Father, your word strikes me. Your word is difficult and it is challenging. And Father, when we think about things like integrity, that seems like a daunting, overwhelming thing. Because Father, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I keep doing, just like Paul said. But Lord, I do believe in Jesus. And I love you because you love me first. And Father, we together join in prayer tonight asking that you will take hold of the sin in our lives and remove it by the blood of Jesus. That you, Father, will transform us, will conform us to your will, will make us like Jesus, will make us people of integrity. That you will complete us, Father. Give us undivided hearts. But Father, not because an undivided heart makes my way into heaven but because I am so overwhelmed by your love for me I am so motivated by your sacrifice on the cross 
I am so blown away that anybody could care for me that much. Lord Jesus, may that be the motivation that drives us home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.